Stay hungry, stay foolish. can survive longer without food than you can without sleep. The fact that sleep is fundamental to life is unarguable, but in modern society, at least until recently, we have taken for granted that sleep simply happens and is a necessary evil to allow us to live our waking lives. Recently, however, there's been a shift in how we view sleep. Rather than being a hindrance to our working and social lives, a biological process that keeps us from being productive, the concept of the importance of sleep is slowly percolating through. Its role in the maintenance of our physical and mental health, our sporting prowess, our cognitive abilities, even in our happiness, is slowly being appreciated. And rightly so. People are taking sleep seriously. The normal expectation of waking up feeling ready for the day is rarely found amongst the patients of today's guest. Their nights are tormented by a range of conditions from terrifying nocturnal hallucinations to sleep paralysis to debilitating insomnia. Sometimes these medical problems have a biological explanation, at other times it's a psychological one. And our guest today and his colleagues are trying to unravel the causes for these sleep disorders and attempt to find a treatment or a cure. We welcome author of The Nocturnal Brain, Tales of Nightmares and Neuroscience, Guy Leschziner. Welcome to the show. Hi, Aidan. Thanks for having me on. It's great to have you on the show, Guy. And I want to tell our audience that we have an opportunity to win a copy of this beautiful book, a paperback copy, which is just out. And you just have to sign up to the innovationshow.io newsletter and you'll be in with a chance of winning books every week. So let's dive in. I thought a good way to start before we explore some of your patients and the fascinating stories was to look at first what makes normal sleep before we look at what makes abnormal sleep. So I think the key thing to remember is that sleep is not one single state. Actually, sleep is a, is a range of different brain states. And if we're talking about adults, and it's important to understand that actually sleep changes as we go through life, but in adults, we tend to go through four or five cycles of the different stages of sleep. We tend to classify sleep in terms of non-REM sleep, which is really what we consider sleep to be, that stage of brain state whereby the brain is a bit quieter, um, there are things happening that are very different from waking life. Uh, and then REM sleep, which is what we usually refer to as dreaming sleep or rapid eye movement sleep. During this stage of sleep, we're actually completely paralyzed. We can't move anything at all apart from the muscles of our eyes and the muscles that allow us to breathe. But if we look at the brain during REM sleep, during this dreaming sleep, the brain actually looks to be awake in many respects, certainly on an electrical basis. So we tend to go through these different stages 
four or five times over the course of the night with the majority of the very deep non-REM sleep in the first half of the night and the majority of REM sleep or dreaming sleep in the latter half of the night. So that's a sort of typical night for an adult. I was scrambling to get to the end of my notes because I have all my notes on REM at the, at the very end here. We'll stick on it because you tell us REM sleep is also a feature of brain activity that starts in the womb. In fact, as we enter the third trimester of our development, almost all our time is spent in that brain state, at least in premature babies born at this stage. And even after birth, a third of each 24-hour period is spent in REM sleep. I'd love to share some of the theories about the function of REM sleep. I, I think that this concept of REM sleep being dreaming sleep is incorrect um, because we know that we can dream in other stages of sleep. We also dream in non-REM sleep. But the reason why REM sleep is considered dreaming sleep is because that's the stage of sleep in which which we most associate with those dreams of a narrative structure, a plot evolving in our in our minds, a bit like the narrative of a film. You know, it may be fantastical, it may make no sense whatsoever, but one thing leads to another. Um, now, of course, when we dream, we dream about our daytime experiences. We dream about things that we've seen, things that we've done. Okay, they may be put together in a in a very bizarre sort of way, but they reflect our living experiences. Now, if one considers that a baby spends a huge number of hours in, in REM sleep, sometimes even before they've been born, then what is it that they're dreaming of? We, we don't fundamentally know. What can a baby possibly dream of? What can a, a fetus dream of having had no experience of anything other than being inside the womb? So one of the theories that has come about is that actually what is happening during REM sleep is that this is the development of certain aspects of consciousness, that um, it is a process that facilitates the development of consciousness within our own brains, and which is why REM sleep tends to drop off significantly in terms of the proportion of the night that it, it, it represents uh, very quickly uh, after birth and once we get into infancy. Um, now, it's likely that REM sleep actually has different functions and uh, different stages of our lives. But the truth is, we don't fully understand the function of REM sleep. You talk about REM sleep also as a facilitator of learning and memory. And it's a funny one, because when you think about like college students, and I do it myself, staying up late, sometimes reading, and you do it in the name of learning. But in fact, you're damaging your learning ability by not having proper sleep. The cycles of different stages of th sleep through the night are clearly of a great importance in terms of learning of new experiences, learning of, of, of new knowledge. Um, in fact, even learning of new patterns of movement. So, um, you know, in, in, in children, it may be that one of the functions of REM sleep is to develop or rehearse certain motor patterns. And indeed, you see this in, in cats, for example, who when they have damage to a particular part of the brain that causes them to act out their dreams, what the things that they're acting out are often related to behaviours surrounding survival, fighting, running away, um, chasing something. And, and so it may be that actually one of the functions of, of dreaming is to learn 
motor patterns to get us better at doing certain activities. But what's quite clear is that the cycles between REM and non-REM sleep are fundamentally involved in the reinforcement of memories, um, the processing of some of the emotions associated with those memories, and actually probably also taking out some of the garbage, some of the connections that we've accrued between different cells within our brains over the course of the day and pruning those to uh, facilitate the learning process. Moving on from learning memory and taking out the cerebral garbage, you talk about REM as some form of psychological therapy, allowing us to rid ourselves of the emotional burden of some of our past experiences. I thought this was interesting because that idea of a recurrent nightmare, it's almost something you need to deal with before you can move on. We understand that there are some important chemical changes in REM sleep uh, associated with um, chemicals like adrenaline or noradrenaline. And when one looks at these chemicals and looks at some of the areas of the brain that are involved in REM sleep, these are often to do with flight, fright, or, 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 or flight um, phenomena. So uh, things that are dangerous, that require a strong emotional or that create a strong emotional response and need dealing with. So one of the things that we do frequently see in people who've had significant trauma in their lives, significant psychological or physical trauma, a, a traumatic event that's associated with a very strong negative emotion in particular, is that they exhibit recurrent nightmares related in some way to that traumatic event. And so one of the theories is, is that when you are remembering events that have happened in your life, what the process of normal sleep, that cycling between REM and non-REM sleep enables you to do, is to recollect that memory but try and reduce some of the emotional context of that memory, which is an important survival mechanism. Because, you know, if you get bitten by a snake, you need to remember that that snake has bitten you and you need to remember to avoid that snake. But what you don't want to be is frozen with fear the next time you see a snake. So in people with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, they often will experience that same recurring nightmare over and over again. And one of the theories is that because the emotional context of that memory of that dream is so great that it actually re results in you waking up from that nightmare. So it's a bit like a needle in the track of a, 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 a the groove of a record. That song is never completed because the needle jumps out of the groove before that song is completed. And so you're destined to play that song again and again and again. And we think that that may be what's happening in PTSD. It's almost like the idea of karma that you you keep repeating the life over until you learn the lessons, you learn those lessons, and then true wisdom comes from that, and then you can move on. And But move, one last thing on REM is the idea of REM as a thermometer of sorts. Because you say if rats are prevented from having REM sleep, they soon lose the ability to regulate their body temperature, and soon die as a result certainly uh, we think that REM sleep is fundamental to regulation of body temperature. Now, interestingly, actually, in REM sleep, that's when we lose the ability to regulate our body temperature. And so the brain uses a protective mechanism whereby if you're too cold, you will not enter into REM sleep. Um, there are 
parallels to this in, in, in humans. So there is a condition, a very, very rare condition, I would stress, called fatal familial insomnia, which is a, 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 a disease of the brain that's a prion disorder, a bit like the Kreutzfeldt-Jakob disease. Um, and uh, in those individuals where their sleep breaks down, then they will often die of changes to part of their nervous system called the autonomic nervous system, which is very much involved in regulation of temperature, in sweating, in goosebumps, in a whole range of physiological mechanisms for regulation of body temperature. You go further into sleep deprivation. I mean, it's a huge part of your, of your work. And you say while it leaves no physical traces, not only can it leave psychological scars and mental pain, it is also potentially highly dangerous. While in humans, systematic sleep deprivation for long periods has never been properly scientifically explored, in animals, it has proven fatal. Dogs kept awake will die after 4 to 17 days, and rats die after 11 to 32 days awake. Sleep deprivation was also used to interrogate prisoners of war and goes back to the Catholic Inquisition. Imagine for one moment that you were subject to this torment. You crave nothing more than a few snatched minutes of sleep. You cannot think clearly, your vision is blurred, your limbs ache with fatigue. It is not a Catholic Inquisitor or a Guantanamo Bay guard shaking you awake at the first sign of you dropping off to sleep. However, it's you, it's yourself, it's your own brain. You are your own torturer. You share this to introduce the idea of insomnia by a significant margin, the most common condition affecting sleep. Insomnia and sleep deprivation are two different things. They often they share a, a great deal, but they are very different. I mean, simp- on, on the simplest level, if you are sleep deprived, then when given the opportunity, you will drop off to sleep. You will be excessively sleepy. Whereas in insomnia, actually the vast majority of people with insomnia, when they have the opportunity to sleep, they simply can't. So there are some important differences. Now, some people with insomnia are also very sleep deprived. They have very little sleep. And in those individuals who have a very, very short sleep duration with insomnia, they are probably at risk of some of the other problems that sleep deprivation results in. Um, for people, for, for actually many people with insomnia, the amount of sleep that they're getting is probably not that different from normal. And this sounds like a bit of a paradox that people think that they're getting two or three hours a night sleep, but when we bring them into the sleep lab, they will actually exhibit seven or eight hours sleep. In fact, I saw somebody a couple of days ago who estimated that they'd slept an hour and a half and they'd slept seven and a half hours in, in the sleep laboratory. So, so those individuals, and that's what we term sleep state misperception or paradoxical insomnia, uh, are not at risk of some of the issues that people with short sleep duration and insomnia or indeed who are sleep deprived have. What we do know is that if you have a very short sleep duration, then the potential consequences on you physically, both in the short term and the long term, can be really quite devastating. And I think that this illustrates the importance of sleep to pretty much every aspect of our lives, from our immune system 
to the regulation of our blood sugar, to our blood pressure, to our heart rate, to our respiratory function, to our mood, even to our cognition and potentially putting people at risk of Alzheimer's disease. I think these, you know, these um, issues really illustrate quite how important sleep is. And that becomes very evident in people who are chronically sleep deprived. I think we should share a little bit more about insomnia seen as it's the most common sleep disorder guy. And you say that if you think about it like a Venn diagram, this is my own mental model of it. You say it can be a mix of genetics can be one thing. But oftentimes, it's triggered by some traumatic event in our lives. And all of a sudden, insomnia starts. But when you have genetics as well, it can exasperate the situation. It's not always the case. But certainly many people can identify a trigger for their sleep problems starting. Now, what, what's important to remember, and a lot of people, when you say this, they say, well, look, you know, are you blaming my insomnia on the fact that I've got anxiety or that I'm under stress? I'm not under stress at the moment. I'm not anxious. And they kind of feel that you as a doctor are perhaps belittling what they have and trying to blame it all on psychological issues. Uh, and that's really not at all what I or anybody else is saying. What I'm saying is that there's often a trigger for sleep deteriorating in the first place. You know, whether that be a life event, somebody close to you being ill, you being ill, uh, some financial stressor, children, whatever, and your sleep deteriorates as a result. And that's a very normal phenomenon. You know, we all are aware of the fact that if we're going through a stressful period in our lives, our sleep will get a little bit worse for a short period of time. What we think is probably going on is that the difference between somebody who's got the genes for insomnia and the, the person who hasn't got the genes for insomnia is that in, if you haven't got the genes for insomnia, your sleep will eventually return to normal relatively quickly once that initial stressor is gone. But if you do carry those genes or if you have a particular personality type or if there's something else going on, then actually once that pattern of sleep has been a poor sleep has been triggered, then there are some psychological and behavioral factors that cause that insomnia to persist in the long term. Now, that's bad news in a way, because it means that you kind of, there's, there's no sort of very easy way to address that. But in some respects, it's rather good because it gives us a clear direction down which we can proceed to try and fix some of those behavioral and some of those psychological factors that are causing your insomnia to persist using a route other than drugs. Uh, and that's something called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. So, so I think the key thing to remember is that sleep is not one single state. Actually, sleep is a, is a range of different brain states. And if we're talking about adults, and it's important to understand that actually sleep changes as we go through life, but in adults, we tend to go through four or five cycles of the different stages of sleep. We tend to classify sleep in terms of non-REM sleep, which is really what we consider sleep to be, that stage of brain state whereby the brain is a bit quieter. Um, there are things happening that are very different from waking life. Uh, and then REM sleep, which is what we usually refer to as dreaming sleep or rapid eye movement sleep. 
during this stage of sleep, we're actually completely paralyzed. We can't move anything at all apart from the muscles of our eyes and the muscles that allow us to breathe. But if we look at the brain during REM sleep, during this dreaming sleep, the brain actually looks to be awake in many respects, certainly on an electrical basis. So we tend to go through these different stages four or five times over the course of the night with the majority of the very deep non-REM sleep in the first half of the night and the majority of REM sleep or dreaming sleep in the latter half of the night. So that's a sort of typical night for an adult. You expand on a lot of solutions in the chapter and the book is full of your solutions but CBTI seemed to be something that's helpful anyway for a lot of people, but particularly for insomnia. If you'd have gone to a doctor 10, 15 years ago and you'd said, I've got insomnia, they would have reached for the prescription pad. Um, and the reason why they are a bit more reluctant to do that these days is because we now understand that some of the medications that have previously been very widely prescribed have some intrinsic issues associated with them. So they are addictive they often uh, require a higher and higher dose to get the same effect. Um, they can cause confusion. They're responsible for people having road traffic accidents in the morning, for example. And in the long term, they can have uh, what seems to be an important role in cognitive decline. So problems with memory, with other cognitive functions. And some of these drugs have, have been associated with Alzheimer's disease. Now, it's important to say that that story is not fully understood, and it may be that actually insomnia predisposes to Alzheimer's, or there may be confounders there. But certainly, there's enough there to suggest that drugs are not the best way of addressing insomnia. And so, what CBTI does is it tries to address some of those uh, conscious and unconscious psychological factors, behavioral factors that are causing the insomnia to persist. Because at the end of the day, the process of going to sleep at a particular time and waking up in the morning is something that we learn as children. It's a learnt pattern of behaviour. And any learnt pattern of behaviour can also be unlearnt. Um, and so the job of CBTI is to relearn that process, to break down the negative associations that people with insomnia have with bed, and to rebuild positive association. So that's at the core of CBTI. You mention, and rightly so, Guy, that we live in a world that's obsessed with measurement and trackers have become so popular. Step trackers, sleep trackers, calorie trackers, whatever it may be. And you say that's not necessarily helpful when it comes to sleep. And you'd say in the book, the number one question you get asked is what it makes a good sleep. How many hours should I sleep? And you don't necessarily always give a figure. You can put a figure on it in population terms. So what I mean by that is that if you ask me what is the average amount of sleep that a person needs, it's somewhere in the region of about seven to eight and a half hours. But the question is similar to saying, well, what's the, average, what's the average height of a 10-year-old? You know, if, if I look at my daughter's class photo, there's an absolute range of heights, and they're all normal. Um, and, and it's important to understand that you may require six and three-quarter hours or eight and three-quarter hours. That does not necessarily make you uh, abnormal. 
So, so a better measure of how much sleep you need is if you are able to go to bed every night and fall asleep within, you know, 20 or 30 minutes, and you wake up at an appropriate time in the morning and feel refreshed, and you're able to stay awake and feel relatively refreshed throughout the course of the day, and then go back to sleep again at the same time, then that suggests that you're probably having enough sleep for, for you. Uh, uh, if you are, on the other hand, you're waking up feeling extremely tired, or you're falling asleep during the day, or you're having difficulty getting off to sleep when you want to, then that suggests that you've got a sleep disorder. But you don't necessarily need a sleep tracker to tell you that. And my big issue with sleep trackers is that the people who go out and buy sleep trackers are enriched for people who have problems with their sleep. So you may have no problems with your sleep at all, and you're simply interested, in which case I don't have an issue with you tracking yourself. Uh, there's a separate issue, as you say, about how accurate those sleep trackers really are. But if you have a degree of insomnia, you have a tendency towards poor quality sleep, then the simple act of measurement can fundamentally change what you're measuring. I term it the quantum physics of physiology, because, <laughs> because you know, the, if you if you have a step tracker and you know that your step tracker is is saying you can you only took five thousand steps today you can get up off the sofa and you can go for a walk and get another five thousand steps in if you're insomniac and your sleep tracker tells you you've not had enough sleep there's nothing that you can do about it and the fact that your sleep tracker is telling you that you didn't have enough sleep is actually going to increase your anxiety about sleep and is actually going to make the situation worse and you're so right about the tracking. I sometimes look at my sleep tracker and it will say I had 30 minutes REM or only an hour deep sleep. And then it becomes a placebo effect of sorts that I believe I've had a terrible sleep and then therefore I feel more tired. So I found that unhelpful about the sleep trackers. But let's jump back to circadian rhythm, which is how you open the book. And we'll share the, the story of one of your patients, Vincent, in a moment. But to give context, let's share the phenomenon of circadian rhythm and how in the 1930s, Nathaniel Kleitman, one of the founding fathers of modern sleep science, experimented on himself and others in the depths of Mammoth Cave, the longest known cave system in the world. Because here you say, this circadian rhythm is hardwired into the very essence of life that since this existence of the last universal common ancestor, the very origin of all life forms on this planet, there has been an evolutionary pressure and natural selection acting to maintain this endogenous clock. The, the 24-hour clock is something that is completely hardwired into every life form on Earth. Um, uh, uh, and um, the origins of that are... Uh, not fully understood, but there are some theories about it in that actually uh, when uh, the universal common ancestor was around and when oxygen began to appear in the atmosphere, then there needed to be some chemical changes on a 24-hourly basis to protect those organisms from the toxic effects of radical oxygen species. Um, but over years, obviously what has happened as organisms have become more and more complex those 24-hour cycles have persisted and that has resulted in behaviors like sleep coming in and then 
during those sleep periods, uh, over time, evolution has fitted other housekeeping roles within that 24-hour period. So we know that if you take a single cell and you put it in a Petri dish, about 40% of genes that that cell produces will exhibit this 24-hour cycle. And the, the, the issue about Nathaniel Kleitman was that he demonstrated that this is not something that is regulated by our environment. Even if you take a bunch of medical students, and you know, in, in, in medicine, we, we have a, a very rich history on experimenting on medical students. He took his students down into, into Mammoth Cave, where the temperature was the same 24-7, where it was dark 24-7, where there was no clock to tell them when to eat, when to sleep that all of the individuals who went down into that cave system within a short period of time exhibited this 24-hour cycle. So this is something that is endogenous, intrinsic to us. It's not something that is regulated by environmental factors. It can be influenced by environmental factors, but that 24-hour rhythm is something that is hardwired into very life itself. I found that fascinating, Guy, that we have this endogenous clock and because I often thought it was just light, but it's in there somewhere, this 24-hour clock. It's amazing. But uh, I mentioned Vincent and one of your cases. Let's jump back to that, because you tell us with him, the pediatrician's diagnosis in Vincent's case was of delayed sleep phase syndrome, and it's a common one. For those with this condition, their circadian rhythm runs behind that of the outside world. While most people want to go to sleep between 10 p.m. and midnight and wake between 6 and 8 a.m., people with delayed sleep phase syndrome may want to sleep at 3 a.m., sometimes as late as 7 a.m., and wake up 7 or 8 hours later. If they get this amount of sleep, they feel fine. Unfortunately, life doesn't always work that way. Vincent um, was originally seen by one of my pediatric colleagues and um, was... uh, diagnosed initially as as this condition called delayed sleep phase syndrome which as you say is basically somebody who's an extreme night owl so so actually our, our circadian rhythm does shift as we go through life you know in teenagehood it tends to shift back a little bit teenagers tend to want to go to bed very late and wake up very late and then as we get older our circadian clock moves forward so we tend to want to go to bed earlier and wake up earlier um for for but Vincent was a very much an extreme case. But actually, when you when you explored what was happening to him, he was very clear. He basically said, look, every day I wake up and I wake up an hour later than I did the day before. Every time I go to bed, I go to bed an hour later than uh, uh, the day before. And so essentially, he was working his way around the clock. So for about a a week, a month, he was in phase with the world around him, he could go to school, he could function, he could go to his boxing club, and do whatever he wanted. But for the rest of the time, he was completely out of sync with the world around him. And it became apparent that actually Vincent had had developed something called a, a 25 hour rhythm. So he was running on 25 hours rather than 24 hours. And that's a very, very difficult uh, condition to to treat. Now, I I would stress that you you described Vincent as a success. Um, Certainly, we we made significant progress with getting him a bit more aligned with the world around him. 
but he still has a tendency to drift and every so often needs to reset his body clock. But it, it can be a very, very difficult condition to treat. One of the dilemmas I have, Guy, is I like to read at night. I have to find somewhere to read. So sometimes I read just before I go to sleep, but it's easier sometimes to read on a device uh, than read the book for a couple of reasons. One is there's a light on the device, so I, I have my iPad, but I also have your book. For those who have noticed, I've taken it off the shelf. And I can take notes on the digital version and scribble on it. It doesn't affect it. And I don't really like doing that to the books. I'm, I am I love collecting them after, especially when I have read them. But you tell us most of us are aware about the negative impact on our sleep through the use of electronic gadgetry late in the evening. But let's share your advice on this because this has a major impact on our sleep. I said earlier that the, the body clock is, the, the circadian rhythm is hardwired. Um, uh, but I also said that it's in, it is influenced by environmental factors. So we know that there are a number of factors that can push your body clock forward or back. Um, so the two most important factors are light. And we know that bright light in the evening is particularly good at delaying your body clock. Bright light in the morning can push it forward. Uh, the other important factor is melatonin. So melatonin is your brain's uh, secretion of this neurotransmitter from a gland called the pineal gland, which used to be thought of as being the, the seat of our soul. Um, but actually, its function is much more prosaic. So it secretes this, this substance called melatonin, which is important in regulating sleep. And it acts as a very important regulator of the internal body clock. So you can manipulate the body clock by giving people melatonin at different times of day. You uh, basically help you, the endogenous melatonin along a little bit. You boost its levels. Um, but what you do by exposing yourself to bright light in the evening is you actually suppress your own production of melatonin. So you're having a, a really negative impact potentially not only on the quality of your sleep, but also on the on actually getting off to sleep. And in the long term, you may actually be shifting your body clock back. And there is some evidence that actually people with delayed sleep phase syndrome may be more sensitive to the effects of environmental light than normal individuals, which is why they tend to push back, go later and later and later with environmental light that for most individuals wouldn't necessarily have an impact. And you hear about the making the bedroom into a sleep environment. So apart from the electronic gadgetry, um, apart from not having a TV in the room, you know, having those uh, lights that wake you up in the morning, for example, and make, make it about sleep, the bedroom. I'd love your thoughts on this. I mean, that, I think that's important, not just for people who have circadian rhythm disorders, but it's also important for people who have uh, insomnia. Um, it's also important for people who have other sleep disorders, because many sleep disorders like, you know, sleepwalking or, um, you know, even narcolepsy can be uh, influenced by the quality of your nighttime sleep, which is directly associated with environmental factors in your bedroom. And let's stay on circadian disruption for a moment, because you tell us it has a major impact on our health, so much so that the World Health Organization has added circadian disruption to the list of probable carcinogens. 
And indeed, some Scandinavian countries have set up compensation schemes for people who worked for them, who were in shift work for long periods of time, who developed certain cancers, because the evidence is enough for them to believe that that's the case. Now, now, why that is, we we're not entirely sure. We think that um, melatonin is to some extent works as an antioxidant and therefore may well have uh, anti-cancer properties. Um, but we also know that there are there's not just one clock in the body. There's the master clock, which sits in the middle of your brain in an area called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. But there are clocks in every organ, you know, in our livers, in our lungs, in our heart. And what the master clock in our brain does is it coordinates all of those clocks within our bodies. But if those clocks are out of sync, then actually your behavior, so for example, when you eat, might be at odds with how your body is seeking to process the products or the, the breakdown products of your food. Um, and that this can give rise to chemical changes within your body that perhaps are harmful to your general health and indeed may predispose you to things like cancer. One of your patients, and you say he was one of your favourite patients because he was so positive and upbeat despite his lack of sleep and his sleep issues. But this guy, Christian, saw nighttime and he saw himself as a director of the movies of night and he said he could live like no other people can. And he really embraced this, but it's a great story. I'd love to share it. Christian is a, um, somebody who has a narcolepsy, which is a neurological disorder that uh, influences sleep stability. Um, and, you know, as a result, he is very, very sleepy during the day and has other problems that do not allow him to lead a full life. But Many people with narcolepsy, because of the disruption of their sleep, also report lucid dreaming. And so Christian lives several lives in his sleep that I think contributes to his experience of, of life in general. He leads multiple lives and he says that he um, sees things that other people would never imagine seeing. So he describes you know, having a relationship with um, a, a girl in, in, in the night. He uh, describes having adventures in his sleep that to some extent he can control, you know, a little bit like a video game. And so he has a very rich nocturnal life that he deeply enjoys. On lucid dreaming, you tell us that monitoring the brainwaves of lucid dreamers using EEG as they move from non-lucid to lucid REM sleep shows changes in the frontal regions. And you share a quite remarkable studies where researchers have been able to definitively prove lucid dreaming. I mean, you're right. This is an absolutely mind-blowing study whereby they uh, got um, a group of lucid dreamers or people who said that they could lucid dream into a a scanner, something called a functional MRI scanner. And they initially got them to lie in the scanner and clench their left fist for 10 seconds, then their right fist for 10 seconds and alternate. And what they could see was the different parts of the brain lit up according to which fist they were clenching. Then they asked them to get in the scanner and just to imagine that they were clenching their fists. And, you know, once again, similar uh, patterns of activation of the brain arose. 
Then they got them to fall asleep in the scanner and to signal when they were lucid dreaming using a sequence of eye movements. Because, of course, when you're in REM sleep, you can only move your eyes voluntarily. So uh, they then got them to signal that they were lucid dreaming and got them to imagine that they were doing the same thing in their dream, to dream that they were doing it. And once again, the same parts of the brain lit up. So really demonstrating that lucid dreaming is not something imagined, it's not pseudoscience, that it's really very strongly based in science. And in fact, we've subsequently seen that actually lucid dreamers seem to have slightly different activity in, in aspects of the frontal lobe that we suspect must represent a degree of awareness even when we're asleep. You made me think of a great part of the book, we have known for years that certain animals like dolphins, seals and birds can sleep at one half of their brain at a time, allowing them to swim or to fly while sleeping, what's termed as unihemispheric sleep. Aquatic mammals obviously need to be able to swim and to surface to breathe, but like us, they must also sleep. So this neat evolutionary trick prevents them from drowning while carrying out these necessary functions. It also stresses the importance of sleep from an evolutionary perspective. If deep sleep served little useful purpose, why would this unihemispheric sleep be necessary? I think I started off by saying that sleep is not a single brain state, but it gets more complex than that because sleep is not even a global brain state. So what I mean by that is that actually different parts of the brain can exi exist in different stages of sleep. And that is probably what underlies lucid dreaming. So this part of the brain that's responsible for awareness or consciousness is exhibiting some form of waking behavior whilst you're dreaming. It probably underlies those individuals who have sleep state misperception or paradoxical insomnia in that there are probably waking rhythms going on in parts of the brain whilst you're in sleep. And so your experience of sleep is different from somebody who doesn't have paradoxical insomnia. It's certainly the case for people who sleepwalk or sleep talk or do other odd things in their sleep. And that we now know that you know, these individuals exhibit very deep sleep in certain parts of their brain, whilst in other parts of their brain, they're actually wide awake. I think I'd be lynched, Guy, if I don't talk about nightmares because otherwise it'd be kind of like false advertising so i'd love to talk about this um you talk about hallucinations we have at night time and non-rem parasomnias for example non-rem parasomnias are a group of disorders that arise from very deep sleep from very deep non-rem sleep so different from rem sleep or dreaming sleep so um these issues like nightmares and night terrors are often conflated but actually from a neurological perspective they're very different phenomena nightmares tend to occur from REM sleep night terrors occur from non-REM sleep and these kinds of behaviors include night terrors sleep walking sleep talking sleep eating for example and sleep sex or what is termed sexomnia these are all you know, fairly complex sometimes behaviours that arise from very, very deep sleep. And they really illustrate once again this concept that the brain does not sleep in a global way or it doesn't necessarily sleep in a global way because we know that particularly in night terrors, 
the issue tends to be that something causes the disconnect in the different parts of the brain so that the part of the brain that's responsible for very strong emotion is awake the part of the brain that's responsible for movement or for vision is awake but actually the parts of the brain that are responsible for rational thinking or for memory remain asleep and it's that disconnect between the emotional parts of the brain and the rational parts of the brain that can give rise to these really quite dramatic behaviors sometimes very emotion laden other times perhaps a little bit more mundane you know on the idea of the the unihemispheric sleep so the bird and the dolphin for example i i thought about that from even the term i was half asleep for example that you say it it poses neurobiological reasons for task related errors because our brain is partially asleep like the dolphin like the bird or like the rat probably not half asleep but certainly what we're beginning to understand is this concept of local sleep that actually even when we're wide awake there are small areas of our brain that are constantly dipping in and out of a form of local sleep sleep on a very small scale and there is some experimental evidence that as you say task specific errors tend to come in uh, the more sleep deprived that particular part of the brain is uh, and the more time that particular part of the brain spends in these little periods of local sleep one of the things i thought about you talk about narcoleptics you talk about insomnia for example and that just grasping a little bit of sleep was you're so desperate for that in the daytime but we live in a knowledge economy and i often think about even exercise for me is like charging the iphone for the day charging the brain but i often think about the workplaces that have these sleep pods but you rarely if ever see anybody ever sleeping in them they probably go there to make a phone call but i wondered how beneficial would that be because you could change brainwave states you could get into a more creative state but also charge the batteries and get more out of yourself so it's almost like doing a sprint and then resting and then doing a sprint again there is quite a lot of um literature surrounding for example siesta culture and we know that siesta culture has some benefits so certainly after a, a lunchtime nap for example your blood pressure tends to be a little bit better um than than it was before i guess that some of the benefits some of the cognitive benefits of sleep come from those cycles of non-rem followed by rem sleep and so typically if you have a short nap 20 minutes or so you will go through the light and intermediate stages of non-rem sleep you won't go into deep sleep and you won't go into rem sleep so a 15 or 20 minute nap will almost certainly improve sleepiness it will probably improve attention but actually from to to get the full benefits of sleep you need to try and have significant consolidated sleep so i guess that if you are if you've been burning the candle at both ends and uh, you're sleep deprived then having a short nap at work will certainly be a very good way of um trying to claw back some of that sleep debt is it going to be as good as having adequate sleep every night probably not 
something that has affected most of us, certainly from a family member or a partner, or maybe it's ourselves, is snoring. And I think this is important to say something that you call out in the book. And you talk about an acronym called TATT and sleep apnea. And before I let you connect those dots, I quote you here when you say we are living through a sleep apnea epidemic. A recent Swiss community study suggests that up to one in two men and one in four women have significant problems with breathing in their sleep. The rates of sleep apnea have increased in parallel with the girths of our neck circumference. As we get larger and heavier, sleep apnea becomes more and more common. Tired all the time is an acronym that is often used in medical notes, which is uh, tired all the time. And there are an infinite number of reasons as to why people might feel more tired. But what we see in, in sleep apnea, which is incredibly common, and as, as you've said, is getting more and more common, is that um, as we as our airways get narrower, and one of the reasons why they get narrower is because we're carrying weight on our necks or deposited within the muscles that keep our airways open. As we go off to sleep, the airway can collapse down and can obstruct. And so um, that results in a, a massive disruption potentially of sleep, because essentially what happens is as you drift off to sleep, your airway becomes a bit more floppy, it collapses down, your oxygen levels drop, your heart rate goes up, your brain senses that something is wrong, you surface from the deeper stages of sleep and you partially wake up again. And that can happen every few minutes. The worst cases that I've ever seen have happened once every 20 or 30 seconds. And if you can imagine your sleep has been disrupted every 20 or 30 seconds, that constitutes very, very poor quality sleep. And individuals with significant sleep apnea will complain of loud snoring, they will complain of people uh, of, of waking up with a sensation of gasping or choking, getting up at night to pass urine, profound sleepiness during the day. So they will fall asleep very, very easily. The worst I've seen is somebody who would fall asleep while standing up and actually injured his head on, on a number of occasions because he fell asleep and collapsed onto his desk at work. Um, and, and so actually, this is really important purely from the point of view of actually sleepiness and road traffic accidents, for example. But we're now beginning to understand that sleep apnea is also implicated in things like cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure, kidney disease, stroke, a whole range of other um, uh, medical issues, chronic medical issues. Uh, and, and so this is of great concern, particularly as this is getting more and more common as we gain more weight as a population. I thought I'd finish on on one last part. And <clears throat> it's probably more to do with the nightmares part of it. And I'll quote you here, because you bring it to life, you say, and it's about Evelyn, this lady that you discuss in the book. It feels like a force is on top of you, stopping you from fighting what you're seeing and feeling, you feel like you're going to die. In that moment, when you can't breathe and can't move, you're seeing things that you don't want to see, dark visions of demons and stuff. You're pinned down, you feel like something's attacking you and is stopping your ability to do all the things that keep you alive. In this part of the book, you share everything from sleep paralysis and hypnagogic hallucinations to Charles Bonnet syndrome. 
Yeah, so Evelyn has this condition called sleep paralysis, which is associated with hallucinations. So um, I, I think once again, it comes back to this concept that the brain can exist in different states of sleep. So, you know, uh, many people will experience sleep paralysis at some point in their lives. So what it describes is the phenomenon of waking up, feeling wide awake mentally, but being completely unable to move. Uh, and what that really exhibits is the fact that sometimes the brain can wake up from REM sleep, but the mechanisms, the parts of the brain that are responsible for maintaining the paralysis of REM sleep, and, you know, as I've said repeatedly, in REM sleep, we are completely paralysed, that mechanism is not switched off. So essentially, you've got a disconnect between the mental aspects of REM sleep and the physical aspects of REM sleep. And... Um, so that can be deeply terrifying because you feel like you're being pinned down, you can't move, you feel paralyzed, particularly when you've just woken up. That can be a deeply distressing experience. But if you're really unlucky, then you may also exhibit some features of REM sleep mentally. So you may actually have, be continuing to dream and those dreams may actually enter into consciousness, resulting in those hallucinations those visions that can sometimes be integrated into your into your dreaming so if you feel pinned down because you can't move or you feel that you can't breathe properly because the muscles that usually move your chest wall are weaker than they otherwise should be then that can become integrated into your dream narrative and you may dream of being pinned down by a demon by of being attacked by somebody an intruder hallucination um, which can be absolutely terrifying. And that's what Evelyn describes. You have a message throughout the book about the importance of sleep, but how little we know about it, but also how we see it as an un, how we see it as this unwanted thing in ways that it's in the way. And you say you look at your daughter's sleep and it's just so natural. But I wanted to tee you up to have the final word by quoting you, because I love how you phrase this. You say, we tend to think of sleep as a black and white affair, like an on and off switch. But you tell us sleep is a complex choreographed dance of brain nuclei, neurons and circuits working synergistically and antagonistically to mediate our levels of engagement with our external and internal world that define our states of consciousness. And as we all know, the more complex a system, the more likely it is to develop glitches. But we have made and continue to make phenomenal progress. And I thought that would be a nice way to give you the final word today. It's amazing. Uh, and, you know, I've thought this for the last 20 years, and I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one who says this. It's amazing that we understand so little of what we do for a third of our lives. You know, if you were to ask, why do we eat or why do we drink? And somebody were to say to you, I don't know, you, you, they would laugh at you. Um, whereas it's quite reasonable to respond to why do we sleep with I don't know. There are lots of theories and there are lots of functions of sleep, but we don't fully understand what it is we're doing for eight hours a night. Now, I think we, we are at the moment really on the cusp of a tr truly fundamental understanding of what sleep is because over the last few years, technology has moved on such a, a huge amount with 
tools to delve into the depths of our brain that we could not have considered um, 20, 30 years ago. We can now analyze genes. We can switch genes on and off. We can use various scanning techniques to really gaze into the depths of the brain. Um, and so I hope that in 10 or 20 years time, a response to why do we actually sleep is going to be completely different. Don't forget, you can win a copy of Guy's book just by signing up to www.theinnovationshow.io newsletter or follow me on LinkedIn where I share competitions every week. Guy, for people who want to find out more about you and the book, where can they find you? MyLashtoner.com is probably the easiest place. Author of The Nocturnal Brain, Nightmares, Neuroscience and the Secret World of Sleep, Guy Lesnar, thank you for joining us. Thanks very much, Aidan. It's great chatting with you.